0: touch with technology with tech stuff from howstuffworks.com.
1: Welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland, and today joining me in the studio is Mr. Chuck Bryan from Stuff You Should Know. Hi, Chuck.
0: (laughs) Insert uh, computer simulated applause. (laughs) (laughs) Right, all over the place. I'm sure
1: Noel can do that if we wanted to. Yeah. Uh, So I I was looking through all the different requests that I've received, and I realized there are tons. I mean, they've just been piling up. Sure. Uh, And I was going over those with you, and you saw one that leapt out at you, and you immediately wanted to do it. It comes to us from Jeff, who wrote, Hi, Jonathan, since you asked, I do have a suggestion for a topic to cover that I don't think you have yet. Could you do an episode or two if needed to cover the rise and fall of Atari? I actually worked in a store that sold only Atari home computers and game systems in the early 90s. Wow. Uh, Atari's products are, at the time were as good or better than what was being put out by their competitors, and yet they failed big time. Thank you for the entertaining and educational show. I enjoyed part one of the 2014 review this morning. So clearly this (laughs) request came in some time ago. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. But yeah, this was one that uh, when I brought it up to you, you said absolutely we should do an episode about Atari.
0: Well, you and I are the same age, roughly. Yeah. And we are children of... Atari in yes. every way.
1: Yeah, we grew up in the 70s and 80s yeah. uh, during the Atari's heyday.
0: Yeah, and it was huge, huge in my life. And uh, my brother actually uh, has set his up recently, mm. and I was just playing uh, Combat last week. Uh,
1: that uh, Combat, and we'll get to this obviously, was the game that shipped with yep. the Atari 2600. And it kind of holds up. You know, it, it really does. I, it's, it's an incredibly simple game and yep. it has incredibly simple graphics, but it's, the playability comes in the fact that it's a two player game. Yep. And, uh, trash talking galore can happen. We even, had a
0: blast playing it last weekend. It really was a lot of fun. And not just for nostalgia the gameplay like you said still holds up to a certain degree i think
1: yeah yeah i mean it's obviously for someone who's like no i need to have you know the 14 different controls mapped out on my keyboard and my yeah. my gaming mouse and everything different. it's not going to appeal to you <laughs> yeah. yeah but it but it it's still a compelling uh, experience so we wanted to go through the rise and fall of atari and it is an epic story i mean it it has so many different elements to it and it's at least going to be two episodes we're going to see how how far we can go before we have to take a break and yeah. replenish our 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 vital bodily fluids
0: before we break out
1: exactly <laughs> good good reference there mr chuck thank you so starting off a uh, little little information before we get into the actual atari days computer games have been around pretty much since the days that computers were first built yeah you know you, you have computer programmers who often had these analytical minds that were also fond of things like puzzles and games. And so naturally, when those early computer programs were being designed, programmers were thinking, huh, I wonder if I could actually make this machine do something fun, not just something functional.
0: Yeah, I think that's one of the things you probably heard a lot in the early days. Would Well, maybe that'd be fun if dot, dot, dot. Right. And uh, before you know it, they were playing some, you know, to us, an archaic. Form of a video
1: game, yeah, maybe like a, a game version of like tic tac toe, right? You know, but instead of it having a video screen, because video screens were late in the game in the computer days, yeah, they would print this stuff out. Like you would have maybe a tape <laughs> printer, and it would print each move. So every time something changed, it had to print a new piece of paper for wow. you to look at, or a new strip of tape, really, because it's usually. Crazy. Uh A friend of mine, his name's Richard Garriott huh and he's a, a big game developer. He created one of the the uh big computer game successes in the in the eighties and nineties called Ultima and he talks about in his days when he was in computer programming classes in high yeah. school, it was all printed to tape and it was like a little adventure game huh and we'll talk about adventure in a bit too, where it would print out the room and your little position like you'd be a little x in right. the room and you'd say go left it would have to print a new version of it where the x was just slightly to the left
0: wow <laughs> this is in the pre eco-friendly days as well yes, uh, burning through paper tapes. these
1: days such a game would probably be frowned upon yeah so uh but you know it sets the stage to show that that people realized there was potential for electronics in the game world and that gets us up to 1958 when uh, a man named William Higginbotham of <laughs> Brookhaven National Laboratory yes, developed an electronic game called Tennis for Two on a Donner Model 30 analog computer. And uh, it would simulate uh, table tennis, and it simulated velocity and changes in direction, all this kind of stuff.
0: Um, yeah, I looked it up just to see what it looked like. Yeah. It looked like uh, sort of like a... Like a, a ship's sonar. Right. Or something.
1: Yeah, exactly. It was taking an oscillator. Yeah. I mean, the same sort of thing that you might see as like a heart monitor in a hospital. Yeah, kind totally. Of, kind of like that. And by you change, by fiddling with the voltage, essentially, he could change the, the different uh, images so that you would have essentially two paddle-like things. Yeah. And a ball-like thing and play a very basic game. And he said that he had made it because people would come to visit the lab and there wasn't a whole lot of stuff that was actually interesting to look at. They right. get bored, and so this was a way to entertain them.
0: That's pretty funny to like to impress people. Yeah, he had stuff that was far more advanced. But he's like, oh, but look at this tennis for two, and people are like, ooh, yeah,
1: exactly, fascinating, like, this cutting edge. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, have you ever seen the the Mel Brooks film Silent Movie? Oh yeah. All right, in Silent Movie, there's actually a scene where Sid Caesar is uh is in the hospital. Uh-huh. His, his character is in the hospital. And two, uh, it's Dom DeLuise and Marty Feldman, yeah. who walk up to his heart monitor and turn it into this game. Oh, that's right. And they play a game of Pong on his heart monitor, I which totally forgot about causes that. him to totally freak out. Yeah. But it's this game. Which is interesting
0: because uh the original, well, we'll get into Pong, but the original Pongs were silent.
1: Yes. Yeah, that's actually true. And in 1962, that's when we get up to the time when MIT professor Steve Russell developed a game called Space War, which is one of the earliest video games. He did this with two of his students, and they built it for a, a big mainframe computer.
0: Yeah, it was the only way they could, really, at the time. Yeah,
1: exactly. So if you wanted to play a computer game, you had to go someplace where essentially a room right. is dedicated to that computer. The Big Mac. Yeah, they were largely still using vacuum tubes for a lot of this technology. Uh-huh. I mean, transistors had had started to come out, but they hadn't been integrated into computers right. deeply at this point. Uh, and that's when, uh, around this time is when an electrical engineering student named Nolan Bushnell, the, probably the most important person in this story. Yeah, for uh, sure. That's when he discovered space war because the computer lab at the university was going to the University of Utah College of Engineering had space war on one of its computers.
0: Yeah, he was uh, – I saw an interview with him earlier today on YouTube where he was talking about – at the time, he said there were only like four universities in the entire country that had graphical displays. Right. Period. Yeah. And University of Utah just happened to be one of them. Yeah. And it seemed like when you start hearing about the story and how it all just fell into place, it's – I don't know if I'm a believer in fate but all yeah. these little puzzle pieces came together in just the right way right. to get his motor running, basically. Yeah,
1: if if they hadn't, if any of the elements that oh, yeah. took place, then the whole arcade industry could have been delayed by several years.
0: Sure. If he had just gone to a different university that didn't have computer screens.
1: Right. Yeah, because yeah. the University of Utah was a pioneer in that space. Yeah, absolutely. And so he really got his uh, introduction to it. Uh, another interesting thing about him is that he would work – in his off time, like when whenever school was out, right. at the Lagoon Amusement Park.
0: Yeah, that was a huge deal because that inspired the thought of, you know what, people are shoving quarters in these skee-ball games yep. and pinball and you know all manner of sort of boardwalk arcade games. Mm-hmm. And he obviously had some sort of business sense to him because he thought, why not try and do this really fun thing that I've been sneaking into the lab and doing every night and charge people money for it.
1: Right. What if we were to create an experience using an electronic game yeah. where on a per coin basis you would get either an allotted amount of time to play uh-huh. or some other metric. Like in Pong, it might be the number of lives. In most right. video games, it's number of lives. But in a few, it's time. Um, and that, that would determine how much of that experience you could have before you had to plunk in another quarter. Yeah. And if I Genius. find it so compelling that I'll sneak into the to yeah. the lab people will be willing to pay a quarter for it.
0: Yeah, it was a stroke of genius. It
1: was yeah, absolutely. I mean, you there are a lot of criticisms that are leveled against uh Bushnell and in Corday including people who used to work with him. Yeah. Um and a lot of people claim, well he never invented anything. I have to object to that because Right. He took Two separate ideas mm-hmm. and turn them into something that spawned an entire industry. And if that's not invention, I don't know what is.
0: Yeah. And whether or not he was, um, I guess it wasn't coding, but whether or not he was soldering yeah. the games and inventing the games themselves, those games are worthless unless someone comes along and says, you know what, I know how to package this right. and take it to the public for them to enjoy.
1: Right. And so, I mean, so without this, this vision Again, I'm sure we would have eventually come around to the arcade industry anyway. Someone would have come up with that yeah. idea, but it would have been later. Right. And the story might have been much different. So Bushnell uh graduates from college and goes to work for a company called Ampex. Now, this is around 1969. Ampex is an electronics company, and I got a little bit of trivia, something I thought you would appreciate, Chuck. What's that? You're a musician. Yes. So... Ampex developed a tape recorder that Les Paul used to pioneer the sound-on-sound technique. No way. Yeah. uh, Les Paul used an Ampex tape recorder, which was designed to have a secondary writing head Uh that would allow him to record a track and then play along with that recorded track to create a new mixed track of both of them together. Huh. So this would allow one musician to essentially back him or herself up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, However, what it did do also is destroy the original track the original recording because right. it records over it so you no longer have that so it was but a, you
0: have you plus you yes and that's the new base yes version.
1: <laughs> yeah which is kind of cool i thought that you would appreciate that so i am yeah, awesome Ampex has had a real important part in the electronics industry in general uh but it also plays host to the meeting of the two people who would really push atari in the early days uh, that's uh Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney.
0: Yeah, and Dabney, they met in 1969, uh, and like you said, both employees of Ampex, and both um, very much interested in uh, pioneering Space War Yeah, as the very first video game. Yeah,
1: they were looking at Space War, and they thought, how can we make this as a coin-operated game? Now, clearly, we can't do the same thing that Space War is doing, because... Having a mainframe computer is not something you can install in your local bar. (laughs) So so we have to figure out how to take this same concept but do it in a much smaller form factor that could be a coin-operated game.
0: Yeah, and that turned out to be sort of a uh, recurring um, thing in uh, Bushnell's career was "Hmm, this guy did something really neat. Let me sort of make a very similar version. Yeah. But in a much like sleeker package that's, uh, consumer oriented.
1: Yeah. I read a, a a transcript of an interview that, um, that Ted Dabney did.
0: Yeah. I read a lot of that actually. Yeah. It's
1: fascinating. I mean, there's clearly some bad blood between the two of them. Yeah. Uh, but Dabney talked about how what would happen is Bushnell would come up to him and say, I want to do this. How is that possible? Right. Dabney would figure it out, tell him, and then Bushnell would go off and do it. Right. So Bushnell had skills, but Dabney always dismissed it as saying he wasn't an engineer. He could do something if you told him how to do it, but right. he, he couldn't engineer it himself.
0: Yeah, he he was a, a he's sort of like a producer almost. Yeah, like and really good at getting re- super talented people together to create a vision.
1: Yeah, sort of like you could think of other pairings that this. This applies to like yeah. Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, who will come up later. Yeah. Or Paul Allen and Bill Gates. I mean, there are a lot ben of different Jerry. references. Yeah, ben and Jerry, uh, itchy and scratchy. We can just keep <laughs> throwing out pair names out there. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was an, it was the beginning of uh, a partnership that would end up launching this arcade industry idea.
0: Yeah. So they got together and they, um, they said, well, let's sort of copy that game in, yeah. a, in a in a cabinet version, Yep. Uh, but we don't really have the money to fund this. So they took it to a few different people, finally landed at a place called Nutting Associates, right. who agreed to finance a game, which was really the very first arcade game called Computer Space.
1: Yep, yep. They they got a programmer by the name of Larry Bryan to come on board. Larry Bryan had also worked at Ampex. Uh, they formed a company that they originally called Syzygy.
0: Yeah, they just said the name kind of sounded and looked cool. Uh, yeah, which, by the way, if you
1: if you don't know how to spell it, it's uh, it's of course one of those uh, spelling b words. It's syzygy, and it refers to the planetary alignment. Oh, really? When things come into alignment, they're in syzygy.
0: I didn't even know that. Had, oh yeah. it had a real meaning. It was one of my
1: my father's <laughs> one of my father's favorite words. No joke. Uh, so that was instilled in my brain at an early age. Uh they they come up with this name which they wouldn't stick with for reasons we'll get to. Uh they thought about using a computer called the Data General Nova eight hundred, but it's pretty expensive and it still wasn't really going to fit their needs. So they weren't really sure how they were going to do this. Uh originally the idea was that all three of the initial founding members, yeah. Dabney, Bushnell, and Brian, were going to contribute a hundred dollars into a group fund to be like the owner
0: operating right. capital. Only Dabney and Bushnell did. Brian Man. never did. So. Do you know why? Did he? Was it because he didn't want to throw in $100? I don't
1: know. I, I never came across. I, it was just a lot of matter of fact of, yeah, Brian never put his $100 right. in. <laughs> <laughs> it was just never an explanation. Major
0: mistake, my friend. Yeah.
1: Well, uh, and so, uh, eventually both Bushnell and, and, uh, Dabney would put in an extra 250 So that brought the owner's equity up to a incredible $700. Unbelievable. Princely sum for this company. Uh and like you were saying Chuck they went to Nutting to say like uh maybe you can help us by manufacturing this thing we'll retain the rights to the game yeah you'll be able to manufacture it and sell it but we get royalties for it as well
0: and it's the next big thing yeah they they convinced Nutting yeah.
1: that it's the next big thing so Nutting Associates has no clue about this stuff they essentially give them the space to do whatever they want to do yeah thinking like all right well we we can't do this ourselves. We're going to let this group do this, and if it pays off, it's huge. We'll be making lots of money, and if it doesn't, well, it, it we'll just call it a loss. So the agreement included a five percent royalty on unit sales. So that's what the the group would get. Uh-huh. Um, and the units were relatively inexpensive. They were like a thousand ninety five dollars, which in today's money is about six grand
0: a piece. Yeah. But it was it was. Not for the home consumer. It was no. for, you know, this is put like, in the bar. Yeah,
1: exactly. This would be like a, a restaurant. Yeah, you know, that's, or maybe a bowling alley, something right. like that. Uh, but remember, there's no market for these yet.
0: Well, yeah, no one knows. Cause they didn't exist. Yeah, it's <laughs> just crazy to think about. No one knew if it was going to work at all. Right. And so, it sort of did and it sort of didn't. It wasn't a big success for them at all.
1: Right, right. And the, one of the pro- problems was that this game that was based off Space War, just like Space War, was Kind of complicated. It was a game built by engineers for engineers. Yeah. <laughs> so you see like all these buttons and dials and stuff and you think, alright, uh, this does not appear to be intuitive in any way. Sure.
0: No one really understood how to play it. It looked a little like asteroids. Yeah. Um, as far as just the, the look of the game.
1: Yeah. And it's one of those that when you look at it, you think, uh, you know, I, I don't even know what it is, like how I control the things, nor do I know what I'm supposed to do. So it had some limited success but it wasn't a runaway hit. It just wasn't that simplistic experience that the average person could immediately identify.
0: Well, yeah, plus it was I mean uh I mean people were used to seeing a pinball machine maybe. But if you look up this thing online, there's all of a sudden it seems they're you know, arcade games to us now that yeah. were so ubiquitous. The, the, the game cabinet itself. But when you look at this thing at the time, no one knew what the heck it was. Right. There was this weird-looking yellow pod right. with, with the, a TV screen in it exactly in the corner. And I have no idea with all the, this little game pad on the front of it and what am I even supposed to do with that on my right. way to the bathroom. I mean,
1: the whole thing wouldn't have even been possible except for the fact that Dabney made a breakthrough while yeah. he, was, he was tooling around in his home. Uh, according to the interviews I've seen in his daughter's bedroom,
0: he used that as his workspace yeah he he moved it, one of his daughters in with the other, yeah, he had two daughters. he was like, I, "I need your room, yeah. <laughs> this is going to be my lab exactly
1: and uh he started playing with cathode ray tube video screens without the use of a computer as as a input, and he used counters and gates, basic electronic components, yeah to manipulate that CRT display to create the images on a screen that you could control by changing the values directly. So uh, think of, you know, you remember the the tracking on a TV when the screen would be rolling and you have to adjust the tracking so because yeah, we, sure. we're old, we remember this stuff. Uh-huh. That was the basis of him being able to control vertical movement oh, okay. on a screen. He just essentially, he, he manufactured a way of doing that where by using a control you could change the the uh, input into the television and make that vertical movement possible for horizontal you had to change voltages right. in a really interesting way so that you could get horizontal movement otherwise you would only be able to move up and down
0: now was that the spot motion circuit yes okay and that changed everything because this meant for the first time that i well not i he could create a game that didn't need a computer attached to it. Right. Uh, you could do a home version of this game.
1: Yes, exactly. And then everything that you would need for the game, you could build onto the circuit. And that meant that every circuit for every game was unique, right? Like, yeah. like one if you look at two different arcade games from this era, the game is all hardwired on the circuitry. And yeah. those circuit boards are going to look different because... It's those physical components that create the assets of each game. Yeah. Which is kind of cool to think about, because these days, we're used to the the general purpose machine, right? The computer. Uh huh. And then everything else is controlled on the software side. Right. But this was all hardware. Yeah. Which, you know, for some- I imagine
0: every game was a little different from the next too.
1: Yeah, yeah. And you look at it, you think like, well, you know, there could even be production errors in, in in, in that, that could create weird glitches that are only for that unit of the game, it's not like a game shipped with glitches. It'd be that uh, a manuf- maybe some solder uh-huh. wasn't complete, and so something in the game's not working properly. Uh, so it made it more like those early arcade machines were really more like pinball games Yeah. than they were Absolutely. like the modern games. Um, yeah, really interesting. We get to uh, August of 1971. That's when the team had produced the test unit of their game, which was, as you were saying, called Computer Space. And they set it up in a, <laughs> in a, in a restaurant and bar called Dutch Goose in Palo Alto, <laughs> California.
0: What a great name. Uh,
1: they officially debuted the game at the 1971 Music and Amusement Machines Exposition in Chicago. And by the end of 1971, they began to ship the game. So that first game was just sort of a test run to see. Yeah if they could get it to, to look. Now it doesn't do great business because yeah, it I think, was so complicated. Uh, about
0: fifteen hundred units total sold. Yeah. Um, but it was enough money um for, for Dabney and Bushnell to sort of continue to fund their company.
1: Right. They decided at that point that they wanted to incorporate Syzygy and then they hit a speed bump because they realized they found out there was already another
0: company using the name Syzygy. Yeah, apparently it was a little candle company and. Mendocino, California like yeah. some some hippies.
1: So that that put their plans on pause as they had to rethink the name and also at that time in 1972 Bushnell would uh, attend a meeting that would later come back to haunt him. Yeah. He attended a meeting that had a presentation of the Magnavox Odyssey, which is a home video game console that featured very several se- silent games, the most notable one being a table tennis game
0: yeah and uh who was was, was the man saying bear yeah was the head of Magnavox at the time, yeah he invented I think called the brown box, which was later changed to the Magnavox odyssey right and uh like you said, uh I think a lesson to be learned here is never sign the guest book right because uh Bushnell um signed the guest book as an attendee, and these before they took the Odyssey to market, they had these very special small batch screenings, yeah. Uh, for invitees, uh, only. Right. And which wasn't the smartest thing in the world to do either.
1: Yeah, because they uh, did
0: have a patent on it. It would
1: allow people that chance to maybe we could beat them to market by creating exactly. something similar. Yeah. And
0: that's exactly what happened in the case of Bushnell.
1: Yeah. So uh this was uh, yeah, like this would come back to haunt him later. And uh yeah, if you are going to go to one of these meetings, don't leave a paper trail. No. Yeah, that's, that's the lesson there. So by June, Bushnell and Dabney incorporate as Atari Incorporated.
0: Yes. Which uh, the name got uh, came from a Japanese game board game called Go. Yeah. Which Bushnell was just crazy for. Yeah. And apparently the meaning of it is basically the equivalent to "I've got you in check. I'm, yeah. I'm about to take all your stones," is what he said.
1: Right, right. And and I think the the uh, the root word was a taru, which yeah. means to hit a target. And uh,
0: just they, a cool sounding name. Yeah. Like it jumped out at him at the time as like, I like it. Right. And they, they, they create some common stock, uh, which, uh,
1: collectively would value the company at about $75,000. A big jump from the $700 that they had in the bank at yeah. the time. Uh, and the famous Atari logo, I didn't put this in the notes, but it was designed by a guy named George Opperman. Now, according to Opperman, the two side pieces, like, if you look at the Atari logo, it's, it's got three kind of columns. The two on either side sort uh-huh. of slope away. Yeah. I've always it, wondered what that was. It's a stylized A. Okay. So that's one thing. Oh, never... Some people call it the Mount Fuji logo because I yeah. think it looks like Mount Fuji. Opperman says the two side pieces represented opposing players and the middle straight section represented the center line in Pong. Oh. Which is kind of cool. Uh, the whole logo was that stylized A and Opperman was the in-house artist for Atari and created a lot of the art that the arcade cabinets were it, you were yeah. sporting.
0: Well, it's certainly iconic now. You know. Yeah. You see that logo, and it just for guys our age, it just really conjures up a lot.
1: Well, yeah, and he, and he had a, a big influence on that early artwork of Atari, especially in the arcade world. He would sadly pass away in 1985. Oh, really? Yeah, uh, only 50 years old, I think. Huh. um But also in June of that year, Al Alcorn, who had worked at Ampex, yes, he joins Atari. And he begins working on one of Atari's biggest hits, Pong. Which is odd, in a way. It's odd for a couple reasons. The biggest one being, no one ever intended Pong to be a hit.
0: Yeah, Bushnell at the time was working on a driving game. He said that was yeah. really hard. Yeah. Uh, driving games still are, I think, one of the tougher ones to get right.
1: Yeah, to really nail. Yeah, exactly.
0: and he said uh, he hi- hired uh, Alcorn and was like, well, I just wanted to give him a little test yes. to see how good he was. Yeah. Because I wasn't going to throw him on this driving game right away right. and so, set him up for failure.
1: Can you program using this circuit that yeah, Dabney exactly.
0: produced,
1: right? And, and, cause this is, this is a whole new thing, like b- designing games ba- using this circuit that had been pioneered for, uh, the, the computer space game. Oh, sure. So, uh, you know, Alcorn takes this concept and he works on, on Pong. And unlike the earlier table tennis electronic games, this one had sound.
0: It sounds so silly, but it was a huge difference. Yeah. To actually hear that little bing, boop, boom, boom. And, uh, it had a few other noteworthy, uh, characteristics to differentiate it that also sound a little bit like, oh, of course, but right. it really made a big difference. The ball sped up. Right. As you played the game. Yep. Which was a huge, huge difference. Yep. Um, and then you talked about, uh, some of these sort of happy accidents. Right. One of them occurred with Pong. There was that little space at the very top and yep. bottom of the screen. Yep. Where you couldn't block. And, in other words, a game couldn't go on forever. At some point, you were going to lose it to that corner.
1: Right. so some, at some bounce, it's going to hit that trajectory yep. where no matter what, you can't block it. And uh, it just it's, it made it more fun. And it was a two player game, so again, it it pitched people against each other, just like we were talking about with combat. That creates an experience that just invites that kind of fun, sort of you know, one upsmanship, trash talking, sort of stuff. You yeah. Know, nothing. Yeah. No, I don't think anyone was making. You know, horrible, uh, uh, statements like you hear on something like Xbox Live because you're in person next to the, (laughs) next to whomever. Sure. But it also was a much simpler game. It was easy to grasp. The controls were simple. Everyone who saw it knew exactly what the gameplay meant. Yeah, sure. So it had far greater appeal than something that was much more dense, like computer space.
0: Yeah. And the name obviously comes from uh, Ping Pong, but they couldn't call it Ping Pong, and they couldn't call it Ping because of the golf clubs. Yep. And so Pong was just sort of the no-brainer.
1: Yeah. So the first Pong game was installed in a tavern- Another called
0: great name. <laughs> Andy Taps Tavern. Yeah, I looked that up to see if it still existed, and I, I don't think it does. Sad. Yeah.
1: Uh, so the original Pong was uh, black and white, had a black and white television for a screen, and people would come in and play even if they weren't planning on buying anything to eat or drink.
0: Yeah, it became a destination uh, game.
1: Yeah, to the point where I read that early in the game's life, they got a call saying, hey, the game's not working. You need to come out here and service it. So yeah. they came out to find out what was wrong. And what was wrong was that they were using an old milk jug to catch the coins inside the cabinet. And the milk jug had filled to overflowing and no more coins could come in. So the game was malfunctioning. Such a great story. <laughs> so they had to they had to <laughs> empty the coins from the thing so they could play it. Uh, and uh, it was kind of interesting. Like this, we'll talk more about it in a second. But the the plan was that in order to give an incentive to businesses to buy into the arcade games, Yeah, they said, all right, we'll, we will split revenue down the middle. 50% goes to you, 50% comes to us. Sure. Which literally we will count out the quarters and yeah. you'll get half of them.
0: And they literally went from place to place, employees of Atari, yeah. picking up sackfuls of quarters yeah. at the end of every yeah. day.
1: Yeah. Possibly suffering enormous back pain. <laughs> one, one of whom apparently carried a roofing hatchet I know. for protection. <laughs>
0: Um, but they were bringing in, they said a single unit, uh, typically would earn about $40 a day, which is, uh, over $220 today. Yeah. Um, which is, that's fantastic for the first thing of its kind. And, um, it said that they, I believe 2,500 machines were ordered by the end of 1973. Right. And by 1974, over 8,000 of these were all over the country. No. And abroad, I think, at this point.
1: Yeah. And, and keep in mind, these are like, you know, A grand a piece and they're getting, uh, they're getting this, this, all of the money at this point because originally they went to, uh, Nutting and said, do you want to do this? And they thought, well, no, we don't really want to work with Nutting anymore. We want to be able to do this with someone else. They, they, they started shopping around to see if they could work with a different distributor of, of games, like, like the kind of games you would find at an amusement park. Sure. So they look at Bally because Bally, of course, was, Famous for their pinball, as well as their other their other games that they were uh, pioneering in, uh, but Bally wasn't wasn't sold on the idea of Pong. Yeah, they wanted uh, Atari to make uh, a game for them. In fact, a couple of games. One would be a pinball game, and one would be a video game. But they weren't interested in Pong. And ultimately, the guys at Atari decided, you know what, we're going to do this ourselves. But it was a huge huge jump for them. Oh okay. yeah. They, you know, they didn't have the background in manufacturing.
0: No, it turned out to be a great move, though.
1: Yeah, no, it's absolutely, it, 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 it really set them for success for at least the next couple of years. So, some interesting things happened in 1973. At the tail end of 72, Atari would file a patent for Pong. Now, keep in mind that when you file a patent, it can take years yeah. before you get, you know, that approved or declined.
0: And it was already released at this point when they filed. Yes. They didn't pre-file.
1: Right. So they file after the game's already released. Uh In 1973, they do something that at first I was confused about until I read more details, which is that they established a second company called Key Games, K-E-E.
0: Yeah, I didn't quite understand this.
1: All right. So they set up a second company that's essentially appears to be in a, a competitor to yeah. Atari. Not just a competitor, but they are producing knockoffs of Atari games. Okay. And here's the reason why. There are rules for certain types of companies where they can only work with a single distributor. So if they create a title and, and enter an agreement with that distributor, uh, all of their titles have to go through that distributor. Oh, okay. So it it limits the options of the company producing the games. Gotcha. By creating the second company, they could produce the exact same games with a different name. Yeah. Under the, the, the name of this other dummy corporation, practically. Right. It's a little more than a dummy corporation, but not much more. And then offer that to different distributors. That makes sense. So it opens up a lot of options. So it's a little Very bit sneaky. of, yeah, a little, 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 uh, smoke and mirrors, a little bit of guess which, uh, cup the ball is under sort yeah. of stuff. <laughs> and, um, so you know, it was a way of getting around that. Bushnell, by the way, clearly very savvy when it comes to working oh, yeah. systems like that. Sure. Uh, meanwhile, Hong well, is going crazy.
0: Yeah, it's going crazy for for many reasons uh, that we already talked about. But um another big reason I saw in that interview with Bushnell said, yeah, is that women were very good at it uh-huh. for some reason, and it appealed to women. Right. And it was the first. um I guess sort of the first time he said that women felt comfortable going up to a man in a bar and say, "Hey, you know, do you want to play this game with me?" Right. And he said that made a big difference. It appealed to both sexes, and um, and it also brought it down as the this great IGN article says to, you know, where real people congregated. Right. It brought it into the bars, into the bowling alleys. Right. And it wasn't like you know engineering students. Yeah, exactly. In the, in it wasn't it
1: wasn't some computer lab where you had to have. Uh, you know, student access to get there. Uh, another interesting thing that happened in 1973 was that they got a new space for putting together their Pong machines. Did you hear about this? The 10,000 square foot space they got? So there was one story that Dabney told about how uh, originally the little space they were in, they found out that their neighbor had stopped paying rent and essentially skedaddled. Okay. So they cut a hole in the wall <laughs> <laughs> nice. and used this next door space. But even that wasn't big enough cuz then they were like, "Well, what happens when we get caught?" as well. We'll just ask how much we owe them. <laughs> like right. when they get when we get caught, we'll we'll pay for it, but until then, we won't. Yeah. Um but then they decided that they would lease a space and they found a uh and a, a business that was no longer doing business. It was 10,000 square foot roller rink. Oh, wow. And they turned it into their manufacturing center for Pong. That's a great idea. Yeah. Uh, and then there's the story about how that, that, that signed guest thing comes back to haunt them. See, Magnavox. They did have a patent. Yes, for electronic <laughs> table tennis. Yep. So Atari did not have a patent for Pong. Magnavox had a patent for ta- electronic table tennis. And this starts to raise some important conversations between the two, where Magnavox is looking at Pong and saying, that's our game, so we're going to go after these guys. Meanwhile, Bushnell buys out Ted Dabney from the company. Depending upon whom you ask, Dabney sometimes just says, no, I was just kind of canned.
0: Yeah, he says that he was uh, forced out, basically, that um, his old friend came up to him and basically said, Um, if you don't accept this buyout, then I'm going to uh, take all the assets over to a different company, right? And you'll you'll be left with nothing, right? So he took the opportunity to get bought out. I didn't see numbers.
1: Yeah, I didn't either. I I don't
0: um, think anyone has ever still kind of bitter about it. It sounds like
1: yeah. the The interview definitely he he portrays Bushnell as misrepresenting the truth. Let's say that's a very kind way of putting it. And
0: I haven't heard Bushnell talk much about it. He seems to. Uh, I don't know. Gloss over that. uh, Or at least not even address it. (laughs) Yeah, that's from what I've seen.
1: Well, uh, 1973 was also when Atari got a new hire in the electrical engineering department. You may have heard of him. His name is Steve Jobs. Yeah. So Steve Jobs joins Atari in 1973. And by the end of the year, key games in Atari, which remember, are really being operated simultaneously by the same heads of people, Enter a licensing agreement for Atari to produce a version of the game Elimination, which was Key Game's first first uh, title. Really? Yeah. And by the way, can you guess? Do you want to guess what the game Elimination was? The title makes it sound like it's something terrible.
0: No. Okay. It wasn't a poopy game? It was not.
1: It was not. It was a four-player version of Pong.
0: Oh, uh, okay.
1: And so uh, the Atari version would become known as Quadra Pong. So it's funny that Atari is licensing a game that essentially the same folks had developed. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like, like it's all, again, it's all this sort of shell game going on. So moving up to 1974, this is where we start seeing, uh, the Magnavox thing come to a head. The inventor, Ralph Bayer, convinces Magnavox to sue Atari, claiming that the company copied the electronic table tennis game from the Odyssey.
0: Which they did. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) And, uh, Bushnell basically comes up The guy makes all the right moves, it seems like, for a while. Yeah. Um, He basically says, you know what? We'll settle for some money, and we'll become a licensee. Right. So you don't have to worry about us. You go and sue everybody else, because Pong was getting knocked off all over the place. Sure. And you spend all your time doing that. We'll settle for some money. We'll be a licensee, and we'll make that and some other Magnavox. Uh, games, titles yeah some titles yeah and uh just don't worry about us anymore and magnavox was like all right yeah sounds it was
1: good to me brilliant i mean they 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 no longer atari no longer has to go after these copycats because magnavox is going to do it on their behalf
0: and they're not being uh come after for Magnavox. yeah
1: so the settlement the about- shield basically exactly the settlement amount we don't—it's not publicized—but you know, according to different accounts, it could be anywhere between four hundred thousand dollars and a million bucks. So not pretty chump change. Yeah, you know, that's true. But still, when you when you know now you've got like your big brother looking out for you, you don't. They, yeah. you know, it's they can just make money
0: now. Exactly, it, it freed them up to be super creative, uh, and that's what they started doing right away, pretty much.
1: Yeah, and this is also the year uh, Dabney, who had who had left, buys the name, the rights to the name. Syzygy Game Company from Atari. Uh, and then he also would leave the board of directors in 1974, which was his last connection to the company. The, by that time, Dabney's connections are now severed. Uh, and then meanwhile, Key Games releases its first original game called Tank, which ends up being a massive hit. Yeah. Uh, and then so such a big hit, <laughs> keep in mind, 1974, Tank comes out. The demand is so high, they go ahead and develop and produce Tank Two in that same year. Oh wow! Like you think about how video games are produced now. Granted, it's a totally different ball game these days. Yeah, yeah. But the way video games are produced these days, they go in for years of development. If you get a game, and you won't expect a sequel for several years to come, unless with a few exceptions. Like the Assassin's Creed series appears to have a sequel come out every few months. Uh, certain sports franchise games, obviously, those are going to come out each year to, yeah, uh, to reflect the, the, new the change. Season. Yeah. But most, most games, you know, you end up waiting years between sequels, but this is where things are just moving at an, a furious pace.
0: Now, do we have the, the home version of Pong yet?
1: Not, well, there were some early, uh, home versions. There was one that was, um, uh, being developed at this time and actually did come out. Yeah. So there, there were actually two different versions of that, right? Sears licensed it. I had that one. So you had the Sears version of Pong.
0: The Telegames.
1: Yeah. And then there was a second one that was marketed under the Atari name. So again it was weird because it almost felt like Atari was competing against itself. It had two different versions of the same thing on the market.
0: Yeah, well because they didn't have that patent yet, I think. So Sears was the distributor and they had their own version.
1: Yeah. And so I th- think
0: that I think the other versions outsold the official Pong version. Oh
1: yeah, the Atari, I think Atari had like 50,000 of them on the market and Sears had 150,000 yeah. of them. It was, you know, easily uh, eclipsing it. But yeah, that ended up being a big hit. Uh, that would come out in 1975. Uh, it was limited to only playing the Pong games. There was, you know, this was not a yeah, cartridge based game. It was just Pong. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's all, again, it's hard coded into the, the console, right? It's, yeah,
0: I it... played it so much though.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I had, um, I, I don't, Did you have one? I had, I had one that was, I don't think it was Pong. Um, and I don't think it was, it wasn't the Magnavox Odyssey because I, Seemed to remember there were sound effects, but I did have one that was the collection of essentially variations on Pong. Like yeah. Pong was one, but you also had racquetball, which was Pong, but way faster. Yeah. Um, then there was uh, one that was basketball that was essentially Pong, but it was turned so that both paddles were maybe two inches above the bottom line. And then you had like little lines that represented goals. Is that
0: you had to hit the ball into?
1: Yeah. Interesting. Like, there was, there was a whole selection of these style games, but they're all just variations on Of Kong. a
0: square moving around. Exactly.
1: <laughs> so I had one of those, I don't know if, hey, listeners, if you know what I'm talking about, and you think, oh, that sounds like the blah, blah, blah. Oh, you'll find out it. Yeah, you just let me know. Um, but, uh, this is also around the time when Atari would announce the acquisition of Key Games. <laughs>
0: How did that work out? Atari
1: buys its (laughs) own company.
0: For a dollar.
1: Uh, Joe Keenan became, Joe Keenan, who, remember, was the the head of Key Games. He's also Bushnell's um, neighbor. Oh, really? Yeah. According to a story Dabney told, he says, yeah, Bushnell says he walked up to Joe one day when Joe was mowing his lawn and said, hey, would you like to run a company that looks
0: like it's competing against me? I basically need a a shell company owner because... I have a shell company.
1: But Joe Keenan would actually become the new president of Atari and Nolan Bushnell was, becomes the chairman of, of Atari. Crazy. Uh, and this is also when Atari starts working on a project codenamed Stella.
0: Yeah. Now this it would is, change everything.
1: again, a home market approach. So two developments make this possible. One is the production of a microchip called the MOS Technology 6052 microprocessor. Uh, and then the other one was creating the methodology of storing games on ROM cartridges. ROM stands for read-only memory. Right. So this is why if you had one of those old cartridge-based systems, uh, they wouldn't let you do things like keep track of your high score, for example. Like right. You, you'd plug your cartridge in and you could get a high score, but as soon as you turned the machine off, yep. it's erased. Yep. Because it was read-only memory. It couldn't write anything. So uh the the console would have all the the stuff that would allow it to accept these cartridges but the beauty of it was you were not limited to a, a select number of titles as long as more cartridges would come out you could play different games.
0: Yeah and uh you know we should set the scene here in the early to mid 1970s um there was not a lot of options. As a child, no. Um, you had crappy handheld games. Yeah, Tiger you, Electronics type stuff. Yep. You had um a few TV channels. Yep. That you could watch three, maybe four, if you could get a UHF station. It was pre Fox, even. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just the big three: ABC,
1: B- NBC, and CBS. Um,
0: yeah. and there were you know all the all the games were like uh you know there were card games and and yeah you know or actually playing outside with your friends, which oh, is great, good Lord. But um. <laughs> but there was not a lot there weren't many options so home computing and the home video console was to call it revolutionary there isn't a word big enough to call it what it was
1: right and so keep in mind this is this is the dawn of two eras that are coming about at the same time they're both about to change children's worlds forever yeah one is that the arcade is on the horizon like oh, yes. not 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 just the you know uh, occasional game in a bar or restaurant or a bowling alley. Yeah,
0: and they had arcades previously, but like we said, it was pinball and uh skee ball and stuff like that. Right. So
1: the video The video the video arcade is just about to come to pass and the home video game market is about to come to pass. Oh man. Suddenly we have way more options than uh, you know, Finding out who's really good at getting hit with a stick—that was that was my favorite game as a kid. I, I was really good at that game. Yeah. I could get hit by a stick like crazy. Was the best of them. Uh, so, 1976, we get a uh, a game coming out from Atari called Breakout.
0: Yeah, designed. Um, well, we thought it was designed right. and perfected by Steve Jobs because he was the employee assigned to that job.
1: Yeah, Bushnell and Bristow, Steve Bristow. Uh, who was another employee of Atari came up with the concept and gave it to Steve Jobs and said, make this thing that we've thought of. Right. It was essentially kind of a, a racketball style game. And so Jobs goes back, does some work, comes back with a circuit board and says, I did it. And they hook it up <laughs> and they're like, wow, this is great. Yeah. In fact, it's so great. You have done such a good job designing this where you've created a really efficient system. Like we would have thought that you would have to use, you know, a dozen or more other processors to get this done, but you've managed to to make a really elegant solution to it. We're going to give you a bonus. Here's an extra five grand.
0: Yeah, and he was like, uh, uh, yeah, my that, friend Woz yeah. was maybe so, a little bit more responsible than I let on.
1: Yeah, there's this guy I know. I went to college <laughs> with him. He works for HP. His name's Steve Wozniak. He's really good at
0: this stuff. <laughs> he made
1: this thing. Uh, so yeah, Wozniak actually built... The integrated circuit yeah. that was used in Breakout. And Breakout
0: and, was and is still a great game. Yes. It's another one of those that holds up. It re- really does. Very challenging, great gameplay. Yeah. Uh, still and, a challenge.
1: And then, uh, and then as soon as the success hit Jobs, he said, all right, guys, see ya. And then he and Wozniak and a person who was one of the, um, developers over at Atari all go to form a little company called Apple. That's right. Uh, It took them a couple of years to get things going, but they, of course, would end up kind of repeating the success that Atari was seeing in the video game market with the personal computer market. So in a way, you could think of Atari as being at least partially responsible, not just for the video game industry, but also the personal computer industry, because otherwise jobs might not have had the uh, the the inspiration and the capital to really go out and say let's do yeah. this thing. So it's kind of cool. Um, Bushnell, by the way, decides he is time. It's ready. He's ready to cash out.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, one of the the problems was they they had this great idea for the VCS uh, or what would become the Atari twenty six hundred. Yeah, and they couldn't really fund it uh, to the extent that they needed to scale this thing. Mm-hmm. And so he wanted to cash out, cash in, and just have a little more uh backing basically and so he made the the well it's a pretty interesting decision in the long run to sell to warners
1: yeah he sells to warner communications for 28 million dollars he walks away with 15 million of that
0: yeah and they all of a sudden um I saw an interview with Al uh, Alcorn that mm-hmm. was he was like we had real money in the bank for the first time yeah he said we had backing and we had uh we felt safe but um Here's the problem. Atari was a uh a very fun company to work for um to put <laughs> like, it lightly. <laughs> like
1: have you seen Wolf of Wall Street? Cuz I have a feeling that Atari was it a little really like was. that. It really
0: was. They said um there were a lot of marijuana smoking. They called it yeah. uh, an MRB session, uh, marijuana review board. Yeah. Um he said one of the uh, developers in the interview that I saw today said we basically sit around and get high and brainstorm games. Yeah. Um they said it was the days for sexual harassment. There were a lot of people going home with each other in the end of the night. Well, uh, I, and then cocaine came onto the scene. Another
1: and- thing to think about is a lot of these game consoles, if you, or the different projects they have, if you look, a lot of the, uh, the code names are women's names. Yeah. And according to most of the interviews I, I've seen, the, the names were picked from attractive ladies who were receptionists or secretaries at Atari. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. Really you know, forward-thinking, classy-type stuff. Yeah, nerd humor. But at any rate, you know, Warner
0: uh, is... Well, they changed everything. They're
1: it, a big corporation.
0: Yeah, the, you couldn't come and go as you pleased anymore. Yeah. They would talk about the way they dressed. Right. Um, you were, you know, like I said, you were responsible for being there at a certain time every day and leaving at a certain time, and that did not fly with these creative startup minds, basically.
1: Right. Yeah, so it caused a lot of tension. Meanwhile, Bushnell would go off to finally really work on a project he had been thinking about since the early seventies, something that he really wanted to do. He had this idea of creating a destination for families to be like just a money making machine. Yeah. A pizza parlor where you would have entertainment and electronic games and other like midway style games. And it would just be a license to print money. Yep. And that, my friends, is how Chuck E. Cheese was born.
0: Yeah. And he, um, I saw that interview with Dabney where he mm-hmm. was talking to him about it at first. And Dabney was like, the pizza's crappy. Yes. Yeah, and well, it's too just, loud in here. He's like, well, I need it to be
1: loud <laughs> and the pizza just has to be mediocre at best.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, and you know what? He was right. Yep. Because yeah. the pizza was never good. And, uh, every one of us loved that place. As a I kid. want,
1: I want to do an episode at some point. Looking, I don't know if I can do it because I don't know if it really falls into tech stuff, but I would love to do the story of Chuck E. Cheese and Showbiz Pizza. Yeah. I grew up knowing Showbiz Pizza, not Chuck E. Cheese. Uh, I, I, I remember, both. I remember Showbiz Pizza specifically.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um,
1: and if you think the two are kind of similar and you were wondering, I mean, granted, they both belong to the same entity now. Yeah. But if you thought the two were kind of similar, it's because the creators of Showbiz Pizza originally worked... On the Chuck E. Cheese program, and then there was a falling out and a a split.
0: So there was another one in Atlanta called Sergeant Singers.
1: Oh yeah! Oh my gosh! I totally forgot about that. Yeah.
0: Um, and I had a little quick side story here. When I was like twelve, the new, it may have been Showbiz actually opened up, and uh, for their grand opening, they had an invitation only thing that somehow my dad was an elementary school principal that got an invitation to this. Uh huh. And uh, to come with his kids and you basically walk in and everything was free that night wow so free food they gave you just sackfuls of tokens anytime you wanted them and it was literally stands out as one of the best nights <laughs> of my childhood <laughs> i still remember it to this day as being like one of the most fun things i've ever done
1: i could see that i mean that would that would be a dream come true it was all free
0: oh man it was crazy it blew my mind
1: well we have talked for a long time. We've got a lot more to cover, but in order to do that, we're going to end here. I'm calling it now. I'm looking at the time. It's over fifty minutes already. Ooh, so,
0: wow. Teasing right before the release of the uh, 2600. I
1: know. we got to have a reason for people to come back next <laughs> yeah, week, things right? are about or, to get really good. Yeah, we've got tons more to talk about. I mean, we haven't even left the 70s yet. No, man. And trust me, like we've got some drama coming up with the rise and fall of the video game industry as a whole not to mention the crazy corporate shuffling of the atari brand yeah. which is kind of heartbreaking but we, we'll we'll address that too and we've got more to talk about as far as just the greatest atari games ever the yep. worst atari games ever the ones that you and i both played when oh, we were yeah. kids and our our reflection on that So make sure you tune in for that. Remember, if you have any suggestions for future episodes, just send me a message. TechStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is my email. Drop me a line on Twitter or Facebook or Tumblr. It's H -S S W at all three of those. Remember to check out Chuck's work on Stuff You Should Know.
0: Yeah, yeah, have a pinball episode that might interest folks listening to this one. Sweet. Good one.
1: I'll, I'll definitely tune in for that. Pinball is one of my great passions. I can't wait to go to the Pinball Museum in Vegas and yeah. just lose myself. Well, that wraps this up, guys. We will talk to you again really soon.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.